Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here back in our usual places with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. And our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Uh, we returned from Toronto, it feels like three years ago now, like the, the festival rush kind of ends and then you're just back to your normal life. Um, but there's still a lot to catch up on from Toronto. When we last talked, we were at the festival. We were in our video studio, kind of high on all the movies we'd gotten to see. Um, and since then, a lot has happened. Um, so we figured we'd catch up on Toronto, some of the titles that were there, some that are coming to theaters. Uh, and then in the back half of this episode, we'll share the interview that Richard did with Nicole Holofcener, who had a film that premiered at Toronto called The Land of Steady Habits. It's on Netflix now, I believe, right, Richard? Uh, yes, it came out last Friday. Great. So it's available for everyone. Uh, and we'll talk more about that film later on. Um, but first, I think the big thing out of Toronto and that maybe came as a surprise for people like me and Mike who left the festival before it premiered. Um, the Audience Award winner was Green Book. Richard, tell us about Green Book. Well, so when we <laughs> did our studio chat on Monday, I had yet to see it because the, the premiere was the next day. Um, and we mentioned it during that, you know, I think, you know, we, we, were, we were wise to not completely ignore it. But when I saw it the following day, like, oh man, like being in that audience, people ate it up. And this was, you know, I guess it was the first screening, but it wasn't technically the big gala premiere that was later that evening. But like, you know, we were the first audience to see it. It was a lot of local Torontonians. It wasn't, you know, all stacked with film people. And they just went crazy for it. And so I kind of walked out of it. I was like, that's going to win the people's choice. I mean, maybe Star is Born could beat it. But like, and the thing about it is, I think I tweeted, for what kind of movie it is, it's kind of perfect. Like, yeah. it has its problems. It will be raked over the coals for various reasons. In term- it's, it's about... um you know, the Jim Crow era of South in the 60s. And so, like, really, really fraught territory to do a Peter Farrelly-directed comedy in. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, it's sentimental when it needs to be. The performances of Marshall Ali and Viggo Mortensen are great, so. So is Vigo like, the white guy who finds redemption via a black um, supporting actor? Or? Um, I mean, sort of. Okay. Really what it is, is it's a road movie. So Viggo Mortensen plays, it's based on a true story. One of the co-writers, it's based on his father's experience. Okay. Um, who is this kind of ring-a-ding Bronx mook who like worked in nightclubs right. at the Copacabana and stuff like that. It's just funny to think of Vigo. It's like Steve Martin playing, um, my, my what was that movie? <laughs> oh, <laughs> when he played the um, mobster. Uh, on the lamb, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking mm-hmm. about. Well, it's also funny because, like, you know, Vigo, he looks great, but he's like almost sixty years old, and like, it's kind yeah. of like an interesting. I mean, it works. He's married yeah. to Linda Cardellini, who's like half his age. <laughs> well, not quite. Half, oh my but... god, that's Linda Cardellini's lot in life. God. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, they shut the Copa down for various reasons for, for renovations or something, and he he needs money, and he sees a job listing to basically be a chauffeur slash valet kind of guy um, to 
who he someone you know who he thinks is a doctor, but it turns out to be Mahershala Ali, who's this concert pianist who is taking a tour of the Deep South. Um, and you know, as a black man, feels not only does he he just needs some protection essentially. Mm. And Green Book refers to it. It was a travel guide published, I believe, by AAA. Oh right, that was for yes. where black people could stay and eat. You know, in the South because yes. of of these laws. So it's serious stuff, but it's really just about their kind of friendship and you know. Don Shirley, who Herschel Ali plays, like helps Tony Lip, Vigo's character, be less racist. And then mm-hmm. in turn, you know, Don learns to open up and sort of, I don't know. It's kind of like, it's very traditional. As someone described yeah. it to me, it's like a Best Picture winner from 25 years ago. Yeah. Well, yeah, I've, yeah, yeah. I've heard it described as Driving Miss Daisy. And I have to imagine it's a little more up to date. Like it has to give the Herschel Ali character more agency than Driving Miss Daisy did 30 years ago. Well, at least the white guy's driving. <laughs> right? Right, which is something they use to sort of comic effect, uh-huh. you know, but also sad effect. Like, it's a weird... I feel like the movie... I feel like it's at least aware of its potholes. It may still land in them, you know, so yeah. to, from time to time. But like like you said, Katie, it's at least like a, a little bit more contemporarily conscious of this stuff. And, you know, Ali's character has real agency, has an arc, you know. And also it's based on a true story. Yeah. So th- that kind of aspect of it, it's like, well, I mean, it did happen. Maybe it wasn't quite this bright and funny. And well, also, like, honestly, is it not a little self defeating to for everybody to just like destroy anything that is well meaning but doesn't con- doesn't conform to like every point of the grad school multi- multicultural studies? Like, this is how everything's supposed to be done going forward. I don't know. Not yeah. to be cynical about it, but yeah, I don't know. I think that this is one of those movies where. A hideous institution like Jim Crow is sort of represented as, well, he can't get into that country club, you know? And it's like, Mm -hmm. right, that was absolutely happening. But there were deeper and more problems. So, you know, whether or not a big studio movie addressing this at all is worth it not doing it terribly in depth. I kind of think, you know, it's going to be a big populist hit. It's coming out over Thanksgiving. A lot of people, you know, everyone in the family can agree on it. Like, I feel like that's... It's, it's, I don't think it's doing harm. Right. And it worked for you, right, Richard? Like, you are the coastal critic who people would say would hate it, but you enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought, I mean, I laughed at, part, you know, parts. I thought that, I mean, again, you're, I was just dialed into these performances, which, like, it's funny, because one, Ali's, is, like, he's playing very, you know, sort of stiff and fastidious, and, you know, he he gets into the energy of the movie, but, like, it's just a funny counterbalance to Viggo Mortensen, who's just going full, you know, hey, like, you know, I'm walking here, you know, kind of like, it's a right. very, like, <laughs> gabagool kind of performance, you know? he speaks Italian in it sometimes <laughs> and it should, that's just kind of an engaging dynamic you know yeah. um, to watch yeah. for a couple hours um, these two actors just kind of like riffing on, on, on these, these caricatures so when it gets to its more serious moments um, one scene in particular I, I think it works you know yeah. um, and it's a really interesting kind of thing for Peter Farrelly who you know was... well, so Peter Farrelly could be maybe best director nominee well I mean let's not go crazy I mean, <laughs> so I I I, I wrote this big post um, that's up on the site now, if you want to read it, where I just went through like the big five categories, big six, actually, categories, and talked about like you know who who's in the head and everything like that. I pointed out in the director section of that post that like the director of The Blind Side, the director of Hidden Figures, and the director of The Help did not get nominated for Best Director. Mm. All those movies were nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, and so it's in, it's in a little bit in that vein. Yeah, that makes so. sense. Uh-huh. You know, although Farrelly, nonetheless, will be showered with, you know, 
probably nice emails from the Hollywood community who've known him for a long time and be like, yeah. hey, good work. Like, yeah. He'll get an honor at the uh, Santa Barbara Film Festival in January. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, they're, they're, <laughs> they're, they're carving the trophy or whatever already. I mean, if you so if you go back through my favorite stat that I feel like I bring up all the time but really never fails us is that the last 10 years of uh, Toronto Audience Award winners, with one exception, have all gotten Best Picture nominees and Best Picture nominations. And a lot of them have gotten Best Director nominations. Last year was Three Billboards, La La Land, Room, Imitation Game, 12 Years a Slave, Silver Lining's Playbook. It's a really impressive streak. So it feels like even if it like the hidden figures, it seems like a more apt comparison than three billboards, but it does seem like you can't rule it out when something can like rush ahead of the pack of something like a star is born or the, the two runners up where if Beale Street could talk and Roma, which are from previous directors of, uh, you know, best picture, best director winning films. So it's, it's interesting. It could, it could have legs more than even we see now. What's the one that didn't? Uh, it is a film called Where Do We Go Now by Nadine Labaki, uh, which I was not at. Uh, it's Lebanese. I was not at Toronto that year, so I don't know. It beat a Starbucks and a Separation. It's 2011. It's just an odd year for the Audience Award somehow. Uh, but before that, it was The King's Speech, Precious, Slumdog Millionaire. Uh, and then you get to Eastern Promises, which is where the streak kind of breaks apart. And David Vigo, the full Vigo. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and David Cronenberg, like, you know, he could do anything and they would give him the audience award. That's true. Nadine Labaki has a film in contention for foreign language this year. Uh, oh, Cap- Renown, which, Yeah. There you go. What about Beale Street? It was it was runner up and I feel like which we didn't great. get to talk about it enough probably last week, but that seems to be very much in the picture director race now. Doesn't it? Yeah, I, I would think, think so. so. Yeah, I think Katie, you called it first about Regina King. That this is uh, what you have to do at Toronto to plant your flag. You have to find something to tweet about that you think is going to win an Oscar, and then uh, <laughs> and then stick and that's yours. The then you own it. I know. Well, you got Bradley Cooper, so I had to find my space. Um, no, I, I think Richard, you and I both maybe like found Beale Street more artistically fulfilling than like audience fulfilling, which is part of why it surprised me that it showed up in the audience award winners, and maybe that just means I need to give it another chance. Um, but Regina King did feel like an obvious stand out there um she got this huge round of applause i think we talked about her last week and then we all watched her win an emmy on sunday night yeah, uh, yeah. which seems like it can't hurt so that was really interesting to watch but but richard yes. did the audience award win for beale street or us runner-up did that surprise you i mean a little bit but just because like what you said it's a really like dreamy you know sort of art piece in a way and it obviously it emotionally connects as well but like it's sad, and it's like it's not a cr- crowd pleaser. It's maybe a crowd mover, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know. So, but I think it's great, and I think that you know, an interesting thing, you know, talking about the weight of this audience award, you know, this people's choice thing. Like, what does that really mean? Well, I mean, what it means is in this kind of in the same way that the the audience at Telluride. It's like these are wealthy people mostly because these tickets are not. They're 80 bucks, you know? So, mm-hmm. I mean, and they're, they're wealthy people who like movies. Mm-hmm. Who's in the Academy? Yeah. Wealthy people who like movies. Yeah, true. So, Although like, they don't it, have to fly to the mountains on a private plane to get there. So there's at least yeah. some uh, lower barrier of entry. Is there technical knowledge that people in various branches of the Academy has that your, your average kind of movie fan doesn't have? Sure. Like, they don't, you know, they don't know, like, exactly what a camera setup is or whatever. But Best Picture isn't really about that technical right. stuff. But um, then what, what about A Star is Born being blanked here? Like, because we all kind of came out going like, A Star is Born is the movie to be tonight. And I think you wrote a piece basically saying that after this. But so we don't want to overinterpret one award, but it is odd that it's not in the top three, right? It is. It's It surprised me a lot. 
Well, a dark theory troubles the internet, right, Katie? <laughs> well, apparently, <laughs> there's a, a theory and uh, that Lady Gaga fans may have uh, gotten in the middle of the voting process and made it ineligible, which is com- based on literally nothing but Twitter rumors. And Lady Gaga fans are known for uh, being intense, but I don't know. Like, I, I can't account for it other than maybe something weird happened because that movie is such a giant crowd pleaser. Mike, you were at the premiere. You watched people like leap to their feet twice over the course of the screening. There were standing ovations before the movie even started. So, you know, yeah, it was surprising. <laughs> and like applause breaks during it, right? Yeah. I So that surprised that surprised me a lot. Um, but maybe, you know, I could see Canadians just being like, eh, come on. Like, that's a big thing that, that doesn't need our support. You know, I yeah. can imagine that. I think also um, just anecdotally talking not only to fellow critics and film writers and then, you know, people back home. No offense, Mike, but a lot of straight men. Uh, there is a kind of resistance <laughs> to this movie because they're like, Lady Gaga, I mean, come on. Like, or I saw, you know, there were a lot of tweets out of Toronto and from Venice from guys being like, I mean, it's really, it's really silly and it's really corny and you roll your eyes a lot. But like, I guess, you know, but it's good, you know. And I think that maybe that sort of like that qualification, that sort of caveat, like maybe makes people not vote for it because they're like, yeah. I mean, I can't vote for that. It's Lady Gaga. Like, that's stupid, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like there is that, that movie does have. It's kind of sanguine as I am on on like its chances. Like it, that movie does have some challenges in set before it just because yes. because of its very DNA. You know, yeah. And it's yeah. not only the Lady Gaga thing. It's like an actor directing. Like these people forget that actors have been directing well for as long as Hollywood's been around, essentially. Yeah, but Brad, I mean, there, Bradley still has some baggage from his early days playing like a douchey, preppy guy. And the, you know what I mean? Like he's not, there's a little something there where people are like, he's the kind of straight white got rich boy who doesn't need our help. I don't know if that's true at all, but like just going back to Wedding Crashers, remember when he was just like the, the preppy dick that everybody hates. Yeah. That's how we first all met or him. Or in the Hangover movies, which made him a movie star. Uh, you know, I can see that. There's a little bit like, you know, does this movie really need our support i guess to come back to that that question i wonder and that could that could end up being a problem it, it does seem like there's room for the ben affleck route where you know he famously didn't get nominated for best director and then argo kind of won best picture on the strength of that snub that was a weird year but it does it, it seems like that level of bias is something that i mean he's gonna have to overcome but he's really good at schmoozing he's gonna go and meet all those academy voters and be great at it so I wouldn't count him out for that. And it also helps that, like, his performance in the movie is really good. So, like, maybe that will, you know, like, Affleck was not in, I mean, I mean, Affleck was, like, in Argo, obviously, but he was not, like, this kind of, like, center star, you know, right, big starry performance yeah. in it. He was never going to get a Best Actor nomination for Argo. Right. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> So when we talked at Toronto uh, a week ago, we said that the Best Picture race felt like it was down to A Star is Born, Roma, and First Man. Do we feel like any of this has changed that since then? I feel like First Man feels a little bit less in that sort of trifecta, maybe. And I think, yes. I mean, I mean, I think that Green Book has moved up. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if it could actually win, but yeah, I, I think that those two, Roma and The Star Is Born, are to my mind still at the head of the pack but now I'm feeling a little nervous because of this People's Choice thing and Star is Born not getting in there and so maybe I'm wrong but I, I feel like Black Klansman and Beale Street are both in there maybe more than we expected or thought a week ago I, I'm surprised pleasantly surprised that Black Klansman is, really seems to be hanging in there in people's minds and Spike Lee is coming up in director conversations the movie has done well at the box office uh I don't know. It's it's a it's a kind of a nice year because there's a lot of movies. Yeah, I think Widows is still sort of like somewhere. I don't think it's going to win Best Picture, but like it could get nominated. 
You know what really sold me on Black Klansman was Adam Driver hosting SNL for the season premiere, because that's usually the slot that they give to like the summer's breakout star, like Tiffany Haddish did last year. Um, and I don't know that he was the breakout star from Black Klansman, but it does seem like some kind of strength, sign of uh, staying power for the movie and also a campaign to push it, which I think is definitely going to happen. Well, by the way, he's also hosting a screening. Yeah. I think it's tomorrow of, the, say, of okay. the film. Like yeah. they're 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 pushing it, and he's involved, which yeah. is a good yeah. sign. I think the other big question is, you know, we've been talking for months now. We're like, you know, uh, there's a there's a space reserved for Black Panther, like in the in the best picture, yes. you know, nine or ten or whatever. But like, it could win. That's yeah. you know, mm-hmm. like I mean, I I know that obviously there's a huge stigma against superhero movies as not being serious or whatever. But, you know, at the same time, superhero movies are, like, propping up the industry, mm-hmm. and this one has a real social dimension to it, and it's exciting, and people are excited about it. You know, I, I don't know. I think that I think that we shouldn't, you know, and I'm, I'm guilty of this maybe more than anyone else, but, like, I, we shouldn't, like, just say, well, it's, it'll get nominated, and that, that'll be that. Like, it could win, so. 100%. I think so, too. And, and then the other one that I think that's in the mix is the favorite. Um, mm, yeah. I... I, I don't it wouldn't expect it to win best picture i think it could win some acting awards for sure yeah and some technicals just yeah it's costume design or whatever i was really getting skeptical about roma after i saw it just because it felt so much artier than i was prepared for based on all the rays at a telluride and like i know it's got this really big emotional pull but i was like oh my god it's like got all these slow shots people are gonna watch it on netflix and turn it off after two minutes uh but it came in third place on the audience award which i think means the same with beale street that like what i was looking at as being maybe too arty for people i was being a snob and it, it's these movies are hitting people on this emotional level uh, through the level of art that they're presenting, which is a pretty powerful combination. I mean, I feel like I don't think we're going to see a cinematic, um, an act of sort of cinematic confidence that successfully executed to match Roma this year. And I think it's uh, the, the question of whether it could win has to do with all of the sort of obvious, like, it's black and white. People are going to watch it on Netflix. It's long. There's no action it's scenes. It's not in English. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no stars. Yeah. But like, but boy, I, I don't know. I mean, did, did it work for you, Katie, ultimately, despite your concerns about its audience friendliness? I think it did work for me. It didn't hit me emotionally the way that it has for so many other people. And I think that makes me a real outlier. And it it could account for like being sitting in the back of the theater and being tired at the end of the festival. Like there's so many things that get in the way of that. But it didn't like the, the, the when you get to kind of the climax of the movie, which we won't spoil, but like what for everyone else felt like an obvious emotional release. I just felt kind of like observing from the outside, even though there's a middle sequence that involves like the riot um, that is really emotionally gripping. So I don't know. Like, I feel like I want to see it again. I don't know what it's going to be like to watch on Netflix, but I'm curious if more people will be like that. Um, and, you know, to kind of counterbalance the everyone being swept away by it, which seems like the predominant narrative. Well, and I, I was concerned, you know, that going into it fresh and seeing it as a discovery was going to be a lot different than going in with a lot of hype. You know, and I think probably the same is true for Stars Born, although Stars Born is sort of built more to like blow, like blow past your concerns. I, I also think we cannot um, dismiss the like resentment of Netflix across anyone who's not working for Netflix right now like the people are really viewing netflix as like an existential threat and and i don't that probably cuts into i don't know what percentage of votes that takes away but got to be some percentage yeah i mean the people will still say you know it's on a movie right if it's on netflix it's on a movie you know yeah Although when you guys saw um, Netflix not win the Best Drama Award at the Emmys, where you, you think like, oh, God, that awards campaign for Roma is going to go into triple overdrive because they need a gold statue <laughs> yeah. this year. 
Yeah, they need something, you know, they're hungry. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I think also, like, you know, we said last week, um, it seems like they have a different strategy for releasing this one. And so, like, maybe they're kind of getting more on board. You know, in the interview that we have later in this episode with Nicole Hollis Center, whose film is also on Netflix, she was in, she, she made she made careful to note couple, uh, several times during the interview that her, that her movie is playing in theaters. I mean, not very many, yeah. but it is. You know, so I think that that filmmakers, you know, because look, the more you get kind of auteurie filmmakers on your roster, the more they're going to ask for things, you know, because, right. you know, look, could could that movie Roma have been made with anyone else? Maybe not, at least not at, at that budget. But like, it's Alfonso Cuaron, for Christ's sake, like, if you want to keep attracting directors like him to your service, you have to kind of acquiesce on some things. Oh, well, when I interviewed uh, Paul Greengrass for July 22nd. Another Netflix there. movie, yeah. He he literally said to me, he's like, Marty, Alfonso, and I are working with Netflix to help them, you know, basically understand how to deal with people like us and do uh-huh. do this. And and I think, look, that's part of the process. Is I have a friend who's a writer, a TV writer in LA, and he's just like, Netflix is paying union wages. I like Netflix. You know, a, a lot of people are going to view it that way, and and but I still, there's going to be some percentage of people who who are not in a position to start working with Netflix and taking advantage of this, who are who I think are, if nothing else, afraid of it, you know, and don't want to basically encourage it to like take over the whole industry. It'll be interesting to watch what they decide to do with Roma's theatrical release, because I think there has been talk about how they're trying to decide uh, if they're going to do a much bigger theatrical push and maybe not to release it day and date on Netflix, um, which to me, I think would be really smart for how essential it is to see this on the big screen. So it could be really different from Land of Steady Habits, where you know it's in theaters, but most people are going to see it on Netflix. Like They could really change it and maybe win some people over in that process if they're not truly trying to kill theaters. That would be, uh, yeah, that would be something. I also, did, did anyone else hear this crazy rumor that, that Netflix is looking at buying a theater chain? Is this, is this I insane? think I heard, yeah. I feel like I heard that somewhere too. <laughs> or maybe like one theater. Yeah, I think I did hear something about that. Um, and I don't know, again, this is all anecdotal, but I have noticed just in the past, I mean, when did Netflix start having movies at festivals? A year ago? Two years ago? Maybe. Um, that, you know, from the booze at Cannes to, you know, there were Snickers at Sundance or, you know, laughing at Toronto. I didn't hear much of that this year. No. Tell, you know, like yeah, maybe it's because they true. changed their logo and it's not the like the bouncy bump noise thing. Yeah. It's just a simple N um, color or black and white depending on the film. Well, they came in you know. with like, you know, stuff that's hard to argue with. Sp- yeah. Specifically Roma. So aside from Roma, which is what's really interesting and most of these movies haven't come out yet, but it feels like we're setting ourselves up for a best picture race with a lot of hits in it. I think we talked about Green Book. I think First Man could do really well. We all think A Star is Born is going to do really well. Black Panther could be the first number one movie of the year to get a best picture nomination since Toy Story 3 in 2010. Um, and that has to help the Academy. You know, they got rid of the, the popular film Oscar, but I always like it when movies that are up for Best Picture are really successful beyond the, you know, like Chip Water made $60 million, which is great for that movie, but not like a cultural defining hit. I, I feel excited about the prospect of that. Yeah. I mean, look at look at the roster. We'll, we could have a Marvel movie um, between First Man and Green Book, two Universal movies, a Warner Brothers movie and A Star is Born. The favorite's Fox Searchlight, so it's technically independent, but it's like part of a bigger thing. You know, like the, mm-hmm. the, when is the last time that many studio movies have been, and also likely successful ones, have yeah. been in that running? I think that's interesting. They must feel good. This was a year where they did not need the popular Oscar. It was, a be- it was yeah. like the wrong year to bring it in. Yeah. Like, Maybe that's part of the decision to just new coke like, it. Oh, it looked, they looked at yeah. everything and they're like, mind. oh, we're fine. <laughs> yeah. Like everything has a big budget and it's like right. gonna, people are going to see it. So 
RIP to the Mission Impossible Fallout uh, Oscar campaign. But other than that, I think we're good. Um, Speaking of populist stuff, um, one movie that Krista Smith mentioned last week that I had not seen yet as a contender for at least an acting prize was um, this movie Ben is Back, directed by uh, Peter Hedges, starring Lucas, his son Lucas Hedges and Julia Roberts. And so I caught that on my it was my last film of the festival last Wednesday. And um, I see what she's talking about. I think that we should absolutely consider her, depending on Julia. how they... Ju- yeah. yeah. I mean, like, is it a better movie than Beautiful Boy, which is also about a drug-addicted drug son, in that case, Timothy Chalamet? Um, no, I don't think so. I think that it that because Beautiful Boy is based off of two memoirs, it has, like, really the, the kind of grain of authenticity to it. But in, in Ben is Back, which is has a kind of more accessible, audience-friendly plot and bangs at the opioid crisis in a very sort of blunt and unspecific way but like which is like i think maybe something that people want because it's like we just know this is a problem and it's nice to watch julia roberts yell about how it's a problem yeah i feel you know <laughs> it's like aaron brockovich yeah yeah, yeah. Ray Do. so i feel like that is going to hold more appeal for a voter who's watched both movies on screener than beautiful boy which is this long depressing very you know sort of granular kind of thing for that versus Julie Roberts yelling at a pharmacist, why did you know basically, or a doctor, why did you prescribe these pills to my son? Well, isn't uh, it know. contained like in a twenty four hour period? Yeah, yeah, it's all one day. Yeah. It kind of weirdly turns into a thriller. Um, but I mean, I don't think this is a spoiler. There is a scene where Julie Roberts literally get, like says "fuck you" to a doctor who prescribed her son opi- opiates after opioids after a, a, a snowboarding accident, which got him addicted. And I think the other crucial thing about that scene. And the sort of tone of the movie in general is it takes the onus off of the kid. It's like right. it wasn't it wasn't my you know wealthy white kid's fault that he got he hooked on these pills. It was his damn doctor. Whereas yeah. Beautiful Boy is much more like he just does drugs because he wants to do drugs, which is really much more realistic. But like I think that Ben is back positions itself comfortably in a sort of like cautionary horror tale for worried rich parents. But that takes any of this sort of burden. I don't know. There's so much, like, I feel like a lot of the movement around the opioid epidemic has kind of focused on the pharmaceuticals and the doctors who are per, who are promoting them. So it feels like even for people who aren't necessarily like these wealthy rich people, like, you can see some of the, like, you know, I just had bad back and then I got this uh, prescription and now I'm on heroin. Like, that seems to be a common story that keeps coming up about this uh, epidemic. Yeah. And, it, and look, I mean, it's, it's I'm not, I'm not blaming any teenager who gets addicted to this stuff. It's not, it's not their fault, but I just mean that, like, there's a very tidy narrative in Ben is Back right. that Beautiful Boy doesn't have. Yes. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, uh, you know, anyway, that said, Julia Roberts is great in it. It's a very serious role for her. Um, you know, it involves some nice shouting scenes that they can play, you know, when they announce her nomination at the award show. You know, if we're going, you know, big studio movies, big popular stuff, it's not a big studio movie, but she's a big studio star. So, And what about Nicole Kidman in Destroyer? Oh, yeah, that was another one I caught up with uh, at the end of the fest. I think she's good in it. I think she's pretty much always good. Um, It's an interesting movie with a real grim sort of muscular tone to it. I think, you know, this is, you know, I wouldn't have said this maybe 15 years ago when Charlize Theron won for Monster, but I think the makeup in this case is a hindrance. I think she looks ridiculous. Uh, She looks like a Walking Dead extra. And, um, you know, I and, and she doesn't need that. And she's such a good performer. She can communicate so much just sort of naturally that the makeup just feels like this silly kind of thing. And um, I think that's going to be 
a problem for mm. it. But it's worth seeing. So just to wrap, to wrap up on everything we caught up on at TIFF, I saw First Man after we recorded our conversation last week and completely fell for it. I really loved it, which I did not necessarily expect given, you know, hearing that it's kind of distant. I didn't love La La Land. I didn't love Ryan Gosling in it. Um, but I really went nuts for it. So I just want to make it clear that I will be the one stumping for the Damien Chazelle movie this year. And uh, everyone is welcome to call me a representative of the, uh, the, the patriarchy or the institutions or whatever else. Uh, First Man all the way. What did you see um, as as like likely nominations and awards coming out of it? I mean, I think it's definitely still in that Best Picture conversation, like you're saying. I don't think Green Book replaced it, but it's definitely in there. I think Damien Chazelle really did accomplish something amazing with, you know, the way that these launches are shot, the way the moon stuff is shot at the end. I would definitely consider Ryan Gosling in there. Like, I think his taciturn expressionlessness worked for me better in this than it ever has before. Um, I definitely think you should count in Claire Foy. Like, supporting actress is weird, partly because we don't know who from the favorite is going to land where. Um, But she does a lot with a role that isn't much like she's got her handful of scenes that really pop and people love her she just won an emmy like the the supportive wife character is something we want to get rid of as a culture but when it's done well i think you can recognize that um and like there's just so much there's so much technical stuff to it like those space scenes they stressed me out like the very beginning when he's doing the rocket test um where he kind of winds up in the atmosphere by accident almost uh it's incredible it it gripped me so much i think that's part of why i just felt so enmeshed in it the rest of the movie but also i mean I don't know why the supportive wife in this felt less to me like a um, tired trope and more like a genuine effort to convey that like there's a whole world that there's a whole domestic world that has to be looked after while this guy's risking his life for this Mm -hmm. bizarre, insane quest. You know, so maybe that's the strength of of Damien and, and Claire, like just doing a good job. I don't know. It, it felt to me actually sort of like a kind of feminist. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. It, it didn't feel dutiful. Yeah. Like they were, it was actually, she actually had like some humanity and a real, you know, role in yeah. the, rather than just being a prop for him. And it showed the burden that he was essentially putting on yes. her, you know, both yeah. both material in terms of keeping a household together, raising children, but also emotional. I yes. mean, she doesn't quite co- quite come out and say it, but there's this almost this thing where she's like, you know, people have said in other movies like this didn't just happen to you. Like I right. I lost yes. a kid, too. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I think you're right that she's given some more to do, which is why I almost wonder. I don't think they will do this, but like, you know, um, Felicity Jones ran in lead for uh, the theory of everything, yeah. you know, for essentially the same kind of role but um but it is interesting katie that claire foy won an emmy as did regina king so two recent emmy winners could be squaring off for an oscar in a few months which is like you know or could win uh, lead and supporting or right? could yeah i mean that would yeah, yeah 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 and then we all feel like olivia coleman's uh emmy is on the way for her season of the crown when that comes so the the lines between tv and film just keep shrinking so let's uh, wrap up talking about Toronto with a film that is actually out this week. Uh, many films premiere Toronto and pop up in theaters right away, so it gives us a lot to talk about. But I think we talked about the Sisters Brothers briefly last week um, and, you know, John C. Riley's role in the film. And next week we'll actually have a conversation with John C. Riley to talk more about the movie. But it's out in theaters this week. Uh, I really liked it. I wanted to make sure we just kind of gave it its its fair push because I feel like it's not as, like, it's not splashy like Roma. It's not huge. But it, I, I really enjoyed this movie. Are you guys fans of it, too? It's super interesting. It stuck with me. I saw it um, the other night, and and I kind of keep coming back to it and thinking about it. John C. Riley is very moving in it. Joaquin Phoenix is always sort of fascinating on screen. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal sets himself like a fairly um, uh, 
difficult challenge of doing this kind of like snooty accent in the old west and it actually he it works and then Riz Ahmed is amazing in it like really endearing you never but you never quite can tell if he's on the level or not from beginning to the end of the film um but it's it's really John C Reilly's film and then the directing is extraordinary the sets are really cool like Katie I at one point I just had the feeling that I almost felt like I was watching like a Game of Thrones in the Old West. Like each town was so perfectly constructed and was such a weird world. Like it takes place, I guess, in in the 1840s, right? I mean, it's like Gold Rush time, so whatever that was. <clears throat> um, and each time they'd go to a town and they'd have the big like thing on screen, like, you know, Jacksonville, Wyoming. Um, they were just so, it was cool. You had a really cool sense of time and place. And the story is unexpected. It's, a, you know, it goes on for a while. It, t- it takes a few more turns than I sort of was like thinking it was going to. But um, but I don't know. I, I, I bought it. I thought it was it was really kind of, it got under my skin. So I haven't seen it yet because um, I'm exploring the brave new frontier of having another film critic who could write things for us. So Cam yes, Collins, Cam who, Collins, uh, he, we, he we wanted him to have yeah, him here, but uh, he's, he's fell ill. He, he actually got sick in Toronto. I think he might still be sick. But oh, really? um, but he, you know, he mentioned he singled out John C. Riley and John C. Riley. I was looking at Gold Derby has popped up on some people's best actor uh, shortlists for the moment. Like, do you guys see that that being an, an actual viable thing, despite it being a western that that comes out in like mid late September? I think so. I would say so. I mean, he's had such a long career. Like, he's been in the Oscar conversation before. And I think the, someone did a profile of him just talking about how he always works best in duos. Like, he's kind of become famous as, like, the right-hand man. He's got another movie coming out this year about Laurel and Hardy with uh, Steve Coogan, which is interesting. And I don't know if, yes. like, if that movie's a Stan hit. Stan and might Ollie. Be tr- yeah, it might be tough to like figure out which one to campaign, but that's always a good problem to have uh, if you're someone who just wants that level of visibility. And what I like about the Sisters Brothers is it's about these, like – killers in the old west which should be like such a hard-boiled role but it's kind of about their vulnerability with each other these brothers who like love each other and are trying to protect each other but like drive each other crazy and then have to murder people like the contrast between that are so appealing and john c Riley is just kind of this like he's like not not totally a lovable lunk he is also still a contract killer but he and joaquin phoenix have this great dynamic together of their affection for each other uh and the ways that they're growing apart and kind of the lives that they want to lead but the fact that they're kind of stuck together in this career that they're really good at um I, I think it's a really good role for him and shows off so much of what you know that you like about him from his 20 years on screen. Yeah, and I think thinking about his his Oscar past, you know, um, he got something of a surprise Oscar nomination for Chicago, um, whereas his, his, you know, Richard Gere, who was the male lead, did not. So, you know, the, he, the, indus- the industry must like him. Uh, and so maybe maybe that, that accounts for something. You know, you got a very classy director in Jacques Odiar, who I think is doing his first... Um, first like American yeah. film in English. And I think John C. Riley, my understanding is that he um pushed to get it made, which is always like helpful when you're actually involved in like the thing wouldn't happen without you. I feel like that right. is a small element and people saying, okay, that's that's cool. Um I don't know. I could see it, but it it is a it's an offbeat film. I mean I don't know that it's gonna connect with millions and millions of people. I also forgot he and he and Will Ferrell have a Sherlock Holmes movie coming out at Christmas, which I totally forgot about. So that's three John C. Riley duo movies coming out in the span of a couple months. Big year. 
So let's now share the conversation that Richard had with Nicole Holof Center, whose movie, The Land of Steady Habits, from made at Toronto. It's available on Netflix now. Uh, Nicole Holof Center has this kind of like well-established domain of these talky and emotional films, usually starring women. This one stars a man, which I find really interesting, and Ben Mendelsohn, no less. Um, so I, I assume you guys talked about that, Richard, about that kind of slight change in what her focus is. We did a little bit, but I had read a profile uh, of her that was done in our sister publication, The New Yorker, a couple weeks ago or months ago, um, where that question was posed to her about like working with a man, and 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 she kind of joked it off by saying, "But he's like a woman anyway," you know. So I kind of asked her about that, and and um, I was a little nervous to interview her because I've I'm, I've long been a fan, and she seems a little bit intimidating with all of her like cool you know music industry past with her her stepdad and all this stuff um but she was she was she was great um and had a lot of interesting you know kind of like frank things to say about the realities of doing netflix and you know various other things um so that was good and i think that one thing that i'm I'm glad that we also got to talk a little bit about uh can you ever forgive me which she co-wrote the screenplay of she did kind of the second pass on it and that's a movie that I think got a real Oscar-y bump in Toronto. A mm-hmm. lot of people saw it, loved it. It was like on the top of a lot of people's lists. So mm-hmm. um, she could be someone who comes back into the, into play around Oscar time. Well, let's listen to the conversation that you have with Nicole Holof Center. Well, I have the distinct pleasure of being in the studio today with one of my favorite writer-directors, Nicole Holofsen. Nicole, thank you for being here. Thank you so much You're, for saying that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's very true uh, for, for a long time now. Your new film, The Land of Steady Habits, is going to be on Netflix uh, when this airs, actually. So that's good. So people can go watch it immediately after listening <laughs> to or, us talk about it. Or a theater it. near you. Or a theater near you, which, you know, of, of course, we, we prefer. And it feels like Netflix is actually getting a little bit more uh, receptive to that. Yeah. That desire, which I do want to talk about the Netflix of it all, but um, at some point. But at first, I just want to ask you, like, by my calculation, this is the first movie you've written and directed that was based on other existing material. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, it is. So, what was that? What's the origin story for this one? It, my agent sent me the book in case I wanted to make it into a movie, and I did. And we shopped it around, and after a long time of it being somewhere else, we landed at Netflix. Because they were going to make it right away and would let me cast whoever I want. So it didn't get stuck in the usual casting machine, uh, studio machine. Mm-hmm. So that's how it happened. And I have adapted books. I've adapted a couple of books prior to this, but I didn't direct the movies. Right. Yeah. So this yeah. is the first time you've done it all yeah. kind of. So the story is about a man, Anders, played by Ben Mendelsohn, who's great, who has sort of given up what he had, his marriage, his job in finance, and decided to start something new, but he's not sure what that new thing is. I'm curious about what about this novel made you say, well, maybe made your agent send it to you, but also made you say, I want to make this. Mm -hmm. Overall, it's something that I would never write, but I really liked it. I don't want to adapt a book that I feel like I could have made this up myself, you know, too similar to my own work. And yet it was about characters I loved and related to and were close to my age and I have sons. And, you know, there were a couple of scenes in the book that just I really thought would be so much fun to shoot. They just really grabbed me. And they were. I mean, they were harder in reality than in my imagination. Right. But, you know, Ted Thompson wrote the book. He wrote some really great scenes, I feel, in this character. I loved how angry and bitter and... Oh, what an asshole yeah. he is, because uh, there's really no other word to describe. <laughs> I could say he's yeah. a jerk. So I don't know. You know, it's just something in, in my gut 
that says, you know, I think I could do this and I like this and it's and it's really different from what I've done. It's much more dramatic. And yeah. it does have a male lead. Yeah, the male yeah. lead thing is, is interesting. I know that you said in your New Yorker profile, which everyone should read, it's great if they haven't read it yet. Thank you. Really interesting stuff. Um, but you were like, oh, but he's kind of a woman. I mean, like, you know, you, you said like in terms of working with him, can you kind of elucidate that a little bit? Like what about Ben Mendelsohn? Uh-huh. Why is he the first male lead you've directed? It's funny because when he did read that I called him a woman, he thanked me profusely oh, and said it was the best compliment he's ever received. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good compliment. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, w- well, I said that because he's very emotional, very available, and loving and sweet. Not that men can't be that way. You know, I was joking, really. Of course, but- yeah. Both the, in the actor, but also arriving at a point where you're like, okay, I want to do a movie with a, with a guy at the center. Mm-hmm. Um, was that a decision? What, or did you have to think about that? Or it was just... No, it was just no. I really liked the book. Yeah. And that appealed to me once yeah. I, you know, liked the book and realized I had to cast a male lead. It was like, great. That'd be different and fun. Yeah. Did, he, did Mendelssohn come to mind pretty quickly or... He was my first choice. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Um, but it took a while for that to all happen. Right. Yeah. But you said, you mentioned that Netflix, you know, they let you cast who, who you want. You know, you have great people like Edie Falco, Elizabeth Marvel, her husband, Bill Camp, not playing husband and wife, which I think was kind of a fun thing. What about the kids, though? Charlie Tahan and Thomas Mann. Yeah. Were you aware of their work or did you have to find them through a ca- traditional casting process? Um, I was aware of Thomas Mann from Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Right. I just thought he, the movie and him, both of them, were, it was fantastic. And so I, I can't remember how we got together, but we had a general meeting. I think I was writing it at the time, and we had a general meeting and really hit it off. And then when it came time to cast this part of Preston, I immediately just offered him the part. It it seemed like a no-brainer. So perfect for it and such a lovely guy. And Charlie Tahan, that was was a hard one to cast. I had a lot of good choices, and so it, it took me a really long time to decide. In fact, so long to decide that certain people were no longer available. Right. So, um, but I made the right choice, uh, I, I feel. I think he's really great, and so much of him was just so perfect for a 17-year-old. I mean, he is really young. Yeah. He had the zits. I loved. He had me at the zits. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, he first came to my attention in a movie called Love Is Strange, uh, the Iris Sachs film, uh-huh. which also you know ends at Julius. By the way, we were speaking about that off oh, air. Funny. But there's something very natural in both of the performances of the kids playing sons or the young men playing sons. Um, the way they interact, not just with their parents, but with the their parents' friends. How does that sort of I mean, you're so good at this, but like that, that just that easy lived in mm. feel. Is that easy to, cho- to to have happen if you have the right cast or is that work? I mean, to get that tone on set. I think it's easy if you have the right cast. Yeah. I still gave them direction occasionally, but they were the right people for the parts. And mm. I mean, Thomas didn't read for it, but I knew he could, he could do it and he did. Um, I just needed tweaking as usual. I didn't have to save anybody or get a performance out of them. Right. You know, it, it was pleasantly simple. Having sons of your own, um, there's some tough stuff with both of these guys. One has been kind of through it and is sort of on the other side of it, particularly in terms of drug addiction. The other is quite still in the throes of that. Was it difficult in terms of thinking about your own life? Were you, was, you, was there projection happening or how did, how did that work? Were you able to compartmentalize? Um, yes and no, occasionally. Yeah. Um, you know, in reading it, I knew, oh God, I have to deal with this. And of course, it's stuff I've dealt with. I had twin boys, um, and they were teenagers once. And so I really related 
to that kind of terror. And when I was a little nervous about shooting some of the scenes that I figured would be pretty upsetting to shoot, and they were and they weren't. There's so much technical stuff going on that it's hard to take it all in, you know, to get the scene right, to direct, and feel my feelings. Right, yeah. <laughs> Not enough room. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested, like, you, you mentioned that this is maybe a movie that deals with more serious stuff than you've dealt with in the past. I mean, there's, you know, I'm not spoiling anything, but there's there's sad things happen in the movie. Um, Really sad things. Um, Was that something you were hungry to do more of in in your directorial career where you're like, I want to do, you know, you've done a lot of television, so you have done sad things before, but in film form, was the kind of raised stakes of this part of the appeal? Yeah. You know, it seemed like a challenge to do that. I've never done what's more of a drama than a comedy you know, while there are laughs in it, you know, I consider it a drama. And yeah, I mean, all of the differentness appealed to me, yet it wasn't, you know, monsters or robots or, you know, people I couldn't relate to. I felt like I could do them justice. But I, I love the differentness of it, this this fact that I wouldn't come up with these things. Yeah. You know, that it's very much a male point of view, I think. Yeah. I've watched it a couple times now, and I was thinking about it the most recent viewing. Um, you know, your movies, and I don't mean this pejoratively at all, could be called small. I mean, they're, they're about real people in the real world. Like, I call you know, them small. Yeah, you know. Um, and yet we li- we're living through a time right now, depending on your politics, well, or maybe not, oh, maybe on. for everybody, <laughs> that um, my tendency when I write a review of something, I always want to infuse like, ah, like all this kind of big apocalyptic outrage about things and whatever. And I'm wondering, do you think that your interest in maybe going a little bit bigger had anything to do with your reaction to the outside world or the news happening, or is it they're no. completely unrelated? This movie in particular is un- unrelated. In fact, I think I have more of a challenge with this movie because it's not the most politically correct, you know, kind of movie um, that people are champion. And yet I feel it's a story that I wanted to tell and a valuable one. No, I, I would love to make a movie that would um, change how things are or contribute to that, but I haven't taken that on. How do you mean not politically correctly like in, in, in just... In... Well, it's about a white man, yeah. wealthy white man's problems and his life. Um, so I think people might say, you know, we don't need this story. We've seen it. And it's like, well, we've seen a lot of similar stories, but this one has this character and this one has that character. And, you know, all stories are valuable. They just shouldn't all be about rich white men, right? which generally they are, or white men. That's not good. But um, they deserve to be seen. Yeah. And I think there is at least a sociological element in terms of, you know, opioids, for example, are in, are, are everywhere, you know, in, in communities, wealthy or not. And, and, and so to me, I felt like that was an, a glimpse into something that real that is happening in the real world. Yeah. I mean, drug addiction with teenagers has been around so long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, not with these characters. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So shifting over to the to the, the grown up characters, I'm curious about Anders having this kind of restlessness that he can't quite kind of account for. It's like, well, why did you why did you leave your wife? Why did you leave your job? And he doesn't really know the answer to that. Is that restlessness that kind of maybe impulse to just change at all something that you can relate to? Is that something you felt in your own career? Um, yeah, especially at the age I am now. Um, it's like, okay, you know, what do I want to see on my deathbed or say or be proud of? And, you know, it's always my family and my children. And 
you know, especially when this business gets brutal, which it does, I certainly want to just get the hell out of it. And I imagine doing something else and having to sell everything I own <laughs> if I had a regular job. But yeah, life is so short. And uh, there is a fantasy I have, like what um, Aziz Ansari does. You know, he moved to Italy to learn how to make tortellini. Right. And then they happened to put it in his TV show. But, you know, I want to move to Italy and make tortellini, but I can't. Not if I want to make a living. Cut right to the eat part of Eat, Pray, Love. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which I didn't read, but I'd eat tortellini. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I think that something that the film does really well is that that sort of urge is kind of ineffable. It's 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 not, there's nothing concrete about it. It's not like I want to go be blank. Right. You know, he just kind of knows he doesn't want to be something. Um, and the people around him, the other grownups, you know, his ex-wife played by Edie Falco, their family friends, Elizabeth Marvel. Michael Gaston, who's great too. I feel like maybe they're a little scared of it because it maybe speaks to something in them. Sure, it's threatening when someone does something that you fancy or, you know, fantasize about, I think. You know, it's the same when your good friends get divorced and you think, well, they don't have it any worse than we do. Are we supposed to get divorced? And I do think, yeah, that people are threatened by that, you know, in the movie and also that he did it all at once. You know, as Elizabeth Marvel's character says, you threw it all away. You're the fucked up one. You th- you, you get through it all away. I think yeah. that's the line. Yeah. No, I mean, it's funny because I, you know, I, I like my job, but like mm-hmm. I still have this pang anytime someone leaves and I'm like, oh, I get this kind of jealous thing. Like, should I be, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. <laughs> embarking on something new? Too? Right. Do yeah. we have to live this incredibly stressful life? Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, I'd seen her act in um, television, and yeah. I loved her in the Meyerwitz stories. Mm-hmm. She was great. And my casting director, Jeannie McCarthy, how about Elizabeth Marvel? And I said, fantastic. In fact, we had another actress playing that part up until like a week before shooting, and she had to drop out. And Elizabeth just saved the day. And, I mean, her first day was the darkest of scenes that she had to play. And she was awesome. Um, Bill Camp I'd seen in The Night Of. Oh, sure, And yeah. Loving and a b- bunch of other stuff. But, you know, it was Jeannie who said, how about, you know, she reminds me of everybody because I have no memory. And, you know, he's great. Yeah, they're, they're, they're terrific, yeah. uh, both of them. It's just a very well-populated uh, kind of movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And thank you, to, I, think, I guess, to Netflix that they just said, hey, cast who you want, you know. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So what, I mean, I know that you're probably asked this a, a hundred times, but like, a lot of big, you know, known auteur filmmakers like yourself are going to Netflix. I mean, Alfonso Cuaron just had a movie at the playing at the fall festivals, which is, you know, brilliant. And like, I don't know that it could have gotten made anywhere uh, else. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious what your sort of thoughts on that sort of landscape in general are. And I mean, obviously, they're putting out your film, so you, you don't want to say anything bad about them. But like, is it the future? And is it a future that looks like positive for for filmmakers? You know, it's a mixed bag. I did have a terrific experience with them. I, I don't have to lie. Um, And, you know, I don't want it to be the future. I don't want so many things to be the future (laughs) that are happening rapidly now. But the good thing about this becoming, you know, streaming uh, more in the future is that more people can make movies and make all kinds of movies, you know, smaller movies and political movies and documentary. You know, everybody can... I think has a better chance of getting their stuff made and seen. Yet, I don't want to give up showing movies in the theater and the theater-going experience and watching all the theaters close, like in New York. 
you know, that I grew up with going to, it's just, it's so sad. And the coffee shops. Yeah. The theaters in the coffee shops. And there's the a Target on Avenue shops. A. There's a what? A, a Target is there on really? Avenue A. Yeah. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> is it a dangerous Target? Well, my joke is that they still sell heroin, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> there's still needles in the yeah. doorway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, no, I mean, you know, think about Lincoln Plaza going away. I mean, that was like an institution. They played my movies in Cinema One? Yeah. On Broadway? Was it called Cinema One? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like there are certain little things opening up where, you know, Netflix is maybe being a little bit more um, accommodating of the of, of, of a, you know, directors, you know, wanting their film to be shown in a the theater, so they'll give it a limited release. You know, I like, have that. Yeah, which is, yeah. yeah, which is great. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, these kind of more boutique full service, get a meal and a drink with your with your movie kind of theaters are opening, at least in New York and I think L.A., you know. Yeah, I mean, anecdotally, people I know do. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Are you a big moviegoer? I have to say no. Yeah, I'm. I, well, I, you know, when I do go, it feels like such a luxury, and I always want to go, and I don't have time, or I'm too exhausted at the end of the day, and I watch it on Netflix. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I'm. You know, I also you know cross the street, texting on my phone. I mean, all the things we hate other people for doing, mm-hmm. I do them. Just, yeah, I'm no. Yeah special thing it's the kind of thing where when i'm on as a pedestrian in new york i hate cars and when i'm in the car i hate the pedestrians <laughs> exactly yeah. we're all guilty of it <laughs> um now we're heading into you know i just got back from the toronto film festival as you know an hour before we record this uh Me too. Yeah, yeah 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 so we're both in the same boat yeah i mean luckily there's no uh, time change but we're heading into the kind of awardsy season now are you a kind of screener hoarder do you sort of enjoy that sort of part of the year where you get to watch all these big oscar films or how do you approach that stuff i have very strong feelings about you know um you know award season and how it you know limits many many movies you know um from getting attention because of you know marketing basically but I love getting the screeners, and I watch them. I watch so many more movies than I would ever watch. I try not to get caught up in will I ever get there. But it's, you know, of course I think about that sometimes, yeah. yeah. Do you gravitate toward a certain kind of type of movie or, like, a genre or, I don't know, scale even? Like a Dunkirk versus a Lady Bird, or oh, I don't know, funny. you know? Yeah. No, I'm definitely in the smaller scale. Yeah. Um, but I'll watch a bigger movie, you know, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, if there's actors I like or the director or the topic, absolutely. But I would say that, you know, and Netflix probably knows exactly what I watch, just like they know what you watch. You know, independent comedies, dramas, documentaries, human, humanity-based things. I'm not a sci-fi girl or a bloody girl mm-hmm. or sci-fi, blood. What else is there that I don't like? Uh, I like thrillers. But not horror. Yeah. I like good movies. Widows. That's when I saw at Toronto. That it's a good thriller with Viola Davis. and Yeah. But not gory? People. No. Oh, good. I mean, there's like one or two okay. moments. But I can yeah. deal. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of these fall festivals, you had a movie that you wrote. Um, I mean, obviously, Land of City Habits was at Toronto. But you had Can You Ever Forgive Me, which world premiered at Telluride. I saw it there. It's really great. Um, it's Based on Lee Israel's memoir, she was a, a biographer turned, well, letter forger, essentially, and um, and then wrote an, an, a memoir about that experience um, that got pretty good acclaim, I think. Um, so can you tell me how you arrived at that? Was Lee Israel's story something you knew before before reading her book? or No, I had no idea yeah. who Lee Israel was. Um, Ann Carey, the producer, had, mm-hmm. the, had the 
book and the project for a while. Jeff Whitty did the initial draft. Um, and He's then, a theater writer primarily, right? Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then um, I took over from there and put my own junk in it, and that's kind of how it happened. Yeah, I mean, it was a terrific job. I got to meet Lee, you know, learned all about her, read her biograph- biographies that she had written, couple of her friends sat in Julius with her friends and then that's it yeah yeah it's a really interesting film and I and I like something I liked about about the script in particular the the sort of you know going back it, it, it feels very particular you know I think sometimes you go to these f- festivals and you see these ambitious movies that are you know gunning for you know big sweeping sort of statements and sentiment and all that and I think can you ever forgive me gets there but like in very small and incremental and very personal ways. Is that something that you're super attentive to? I mean, I guess that's been a through line in a lot of your writing where it's, it's very specific. Yeah, I think that's what makes everybody unique is the specificity. And, you know, I haven't read the memoir in a long time, but, you know, a lot of it was there, her relationships, the stuff she did, you know, make, making up stuff, cutting out stuff. I don't know. I think it's just a matter of taste. I don't like big, broad, or melodramatic, or not real. You know, if someone doesn't sound like they should be sounding, I'd fix it. Mm-hmm. Not everyone has to be funny, you know. Um, depends on who they're playing. And I don't know. I, I just try to do my best. Well, I mean, it's it's a nice script. And, you know, you. I hate to even, you know, jinx anything, but, you know, it's... I feel like in Toronto, it, I heard a lot of people talking about it. And so is that sort of like, oh, maybe it could be in a best adapted screenplay, you know, race or something. Is that something you think about or is that best out of mind? Um, best out of mind. People said that to me. Yeah. But it's a long way off. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and that would be lovely, of course. But I interviewed someone in Toronto who has um, who might be up for best original song, I think. And I said, well, you're going to go against Lady Gaga. And he just about jumped across the room and strangled me. He was like, do not say that, you know. Uh, so I'm, I'm sorry to even bring it up. But um, yeah, it's I, true. I think it's in I, I think it could be. Yeah. Um, you. <laughs> so you're working with Netflix now. Uh, at least you've done one film with them. Do you have any further thing with them? I, weren't you working on a television series, or am I crazy? Yeah, for HBO. Oh, for HBO. Mrs. Okay. Fletcher. That's right. That's Tom right. Parada novel. That's right. Okay, and that's been cast and everything, or uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who's leading that? Catherine Hahn. Oh, perfect. Okay, yeah. that'll be great. Yeah. Yeah. She hasn't been in any of your films. No, has she? no. we feel like both she and I feel like she has been. Yeah, the <laughs> you know, sensibility. Like, don't we know each yeah. other already? We knew each other socially, but not work together yeah that'll yeah. be exciting that's out next year um i don't know when they're gonna yeah. put it on i have no idea um yeah and i'm writing a new script that's great for me to direct hopefully and yeah. um i don't know where it will go it's on spec right now are you um at all you know kind of like anders in a way like ever curious about like doing something new like in terms of even just genre or i mean i feel like you know land of steady habits is an expansion of that certainly um is there anywhere else you'd like to go that you haven't been? I think I'd like to direct a thriller. I don't think I could write one. I don't think I have that in my head. Even in checkers, like, I can't plan ahead, you know, <laughs> yeah. to strategize. Yeah. I have no strategy. And so writing a thriller, I think, would be hard. Um, but if someone handed me a really good one um, that was fun and scary and psychologically interesting, you know, with interesting characters. I would I would love to do that. You know, costume drama. Hmm. I'd love to shoot something in Europe, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have to keep shooting in New York or LA. 
Yeah. There's something else that out there. I um, I don't know. I feel like between enough said and the moments of Julia's character trying to kind of hide from Catherine and James that she knows both of them, and then um, in Can You Ever Forgive Me, this kind of these kind of mounting lies. There's thriller stuff there in True. a way. You I know? had and I know and enough said. And that was challenging for me, like how to have her hide without it seeming like a cartoon. And I think it still does a little bit, but it pays off. And I think you're engaged enough with her, I hope. Um, yeah, that was my um, thriller sequence. Yeah. So it was just, I feel like you could just build on that. Yeah, and, okay. And, and, and More I, hiding and lying. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, just with like, you know, maybe some like Crimes. intense string music and, yes. you know, a street, a foot chase or something. Exactly. That's all. Yeah. So it's already, it's directed itself. You're, yeah. You're, you're already there. Um, well, Nicole, thank you for coming in and talking to us. Thank I really you. appreciate it. My pleasure. And I hope that people will see the movie, preferably in theaters, but if on Netflix it must be, then so be it. There'll be it. All right. Thanks, Nicole. Thank you. So that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, as always, and leave us a review. Help create more award season addicts like us. Uh, you can find all of our writing at VanityFair.com, including Richard's excellent uh, piece looking at the Oscar race after Toronto, which is called A Star is Born is Already the Oscar Movie to Beat. We stand by it. Um, you can find us all on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard. Rye Laws. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth, and this week's award for the best accent out of the Toronto Film Festival goes to Richard Lawson. Going full, you know, hey, like, you know, I'm walking here. Gabagool had a performance, you know. 